We bring you peace, love, and unity, sings the reggae band Fortune Youth. We here at Solutions of Violence are trying to do the same thing, bring you peace, love, and unity. As is our guest today, Judd Hendricks, the Executive Director of Louisville's Interfaith Past Peace. Hi folks, we are Solutions of Violence. Glad you could join us. You're listening to Forward Radio, WFMP 106.5 FM. Solutions of Violence is a program of and sponsored by Forward Radio. Forward Radio is an affiliate of the Louisville Fellowship for Reconciliation. The following is part of WFMP's public affairs educational programming. The views expressed are those of the speakers and not the station. If you'd like to share your views, you may contact us by emailing us at solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. I'm Jim Johnson. My co-host is Jamie McMillan. We are your host for Solutions of Violence. Our technical engineer is Carolyn Brooks Johnson. Our guest today, Judd Hendricks, has a PhD in social change with a focus in global citizenship from Bellarmine University. As an adjunct professor at Bellarmine University, he has taught courses in world religion, refugees, immigration in Louisville, integral approaches to social change, interfaith spirituality, creating sustainable environment, and the quest for God. Dr. Hendricks has also held a position of convener, project manager for Lean and to Louisville, an organization designed to reduce prejudice and discrimination, build a more equitable Louisville. He has been executive director for Global Human Project, which explores the extraordinary potential that exists in all people as individuals, as well as the potential we have together as a human family. Judd has been executive director of Interfaith Pass to Peace since November 19. Judd, welcome to Solutions to Violence. Always wonderful to be with you all. Thank you. Nice to have you back. Uh, Judd, you've appeared on our program before, but for those who may have missed that first appearance, tell us about Interfaith Pass to Peace and, and what is the purpose? How does IPP go about achieving their goals? Yeah, Interfaith Pass to Peace has been around for uh, 20 years now and is essentially an organization that originally was focused on how do we bring different religious groups together to create peace and and harmony between them. Uh, That is essentially when Louisville was diversifying, we experienced there was a lot of tension between religious groups, those that had different worldviews and different practices. And so the not only bringing those groups together for understanding and collaboration, but to help educate the Louisville community on the diversity of religious expression here in Louisville, and then how to empower those religious communities and leaders to work together uh, to create peace in utilizing the practices and principles that their different religious traditions were based on. So we've been doing that work uh, for 20 years now, and that's uh, changed as we've uh, seen that there are other areas of peacemaking that need to happen with different groups. We've been heavily involved in the uh, racial justice uh, work recently and also trying to... uh, bring people together, like we have a conversation this afternoon at three o'clock on the urban-rural divide. So if you look at any political map, you can see that the biggest divide in our country right now is between urban centers and their uh, surrounding rural communities. And so we try to work at the those places, those fulcrum points where there is misunderstanding, where there is you know prejudice and discrimination against different groups, and bring those groups together for mutual understanding and ultimately through collaboration. So that's uh, essentially the work that we do. Your academic background and your career path demonstrates your quest for peace, fairness, justice, 
in diversity. For Judd Hendricks, what is the origin of this passion? Yeah, well, that's a, it's been an emerging journey for me as it has been for all of us. I was originally grounded in a, a Baptist, a liberal Baptist, progressive Baptist tradition that was always focused on, yeah, justice making concern um, uh, to be engaged in the world. I was, uh, my mother was the youth minister at Walnut Street Baptist Church, which is an urban church here in Louisville, Kentucky. And so the youth group that I went to was uh, racially diverse. And that's kind of when I got interested in kind of that diversity work and building relationships across those uh, differences. And I was really formed in the Christian tradition around peace and justice making. I became Presbyterian and was very interested in their justice work and how they integrated that into faith and how central that was in the ministry of and life of Jesus. And ultimately, there, um, you know, I think we all have this, I still talk about a sense of, I'm, I'm not Presbyterian, and I don't necessarily claim Christianity anymore, even though that was the path that, that formed and shaped me. I, I still believe in this deep sense of calling that, you know, my life is um, not my own that I'm here for reasons more than just me. And so I think my, my Christian faith tradition has given me a sense that, yeah, I'm connected to something greater than I am and who I am. And that demands certain things of me, or it doesn't demand, it asks certain things of my life uh, to be a part of what that larger force is doing in the world. And so, you know, I find that what fulfills me, what feels like my soul work is, um, is to move to these places where there is unrest, where there's lack of peace, where there's pain in our community, and to try to be a healing force in that. So, yeah, uh, I think a lot of that comes, um, well, also the, the diversity piece. I believe that as humans, our consciousness is raised when we encounter people that are not like us, when we hear stories and when we build relationships with people that are different, our minds and our hearts have to expand in order to make space for them as, as fellow humans. And so I have found that relationships with people that are different than me become the fulcrum point for my own conscious evolution. And so that's why I'm really interested in, you know, cultivating relationships across diversity and divides, because I think that's how our minds expand and also our hearts expand. And I think that is the, um, the real opportunity to evolve as humans is the capacity for us to have bigger minds and bigger hearts. So a sense of calling, a sense of being formed, and a sense that that's where the, the world and evolution is headed is making unity out of increasing diversity. So that's kind of where my, my call and, and passion for this work comes from. We believe uh, poetry is uh, a genre that, that best expresses passion for peace and justice. And why poetry? Yeah, we've started a program at Interfaith Paths to Peace in the mornings at 9 o'clock on Thursdays called Lectio Divina with poetry. And Lectio Divina is a meditative, reflective process that kind of came out of the contemplative Catholic tradition. And they would use scripture, which is often what 
people will use in Lectio Divina, but I have found that our canon, we have a new canon, and often my canon includes just really amazing writers of poetry. And so I've found that for me spiritually to be very insightful. And what I love about poetry, and this has to do with myth and metaphor and symbolic language, has a way of speaking to us in a way that we don't get caught or trapped in our minds. That's also like the power of storytelling. And that's a lot of the poems I I like to read and we read in our, our program are poems that are written by people that, you know, I don't share a background with or they their culture, their tradition may be vastly different. And so when, like when we hear a story, it's not whether we agree or disagree with it. It's that we hear it and we experience it in a different way. So I found that that listening to poetry or listening to people's stories touch part of my heart or soul that often theoretical language or argumentative language, even though I, I really appreciate good, you know, mind concepts, I, uh, I find that poetry opens up a different part of myself that allows me to hear another person's experience or... Um, be touched by the power of their words, even though that may not be my experience. And so I, I think listening to each other's poetry and each other's words and each other's stories is a, is a great way to, to go about, you know, perspective taking and, and ultimately peacemaking. There's a, um, I've got a poem that kind of describes, it's a poem about poems, if this would be an okay time to read that, it's kind of an example of what I'm what I'm talking about. Would that yeah, be okay? Sure. Yeah. So this is um, is it's a poem or a reflection about making peace, and this is by Denise uh, Levertov. A voice from the dark called out, "The poets must give us imagination of peace, to oust the intense, familiar imagination of disaster." Peace, not only the absence of war, but peace, like a poem, is not there ahead of itself, can't be imagined before it is made, can't be known except that in the words of its making, grammar of justice, syntax of mutual aid, a feeling towards it, dimly sensing a rhythm, is all we have until we begin to utter its metaphors, learning them as we speak. A line of peace might appear if we restructured the sentence of our lives are making, revoked its reaffirmation of profit and power, questioned our needs, allowing long pauses, A cadence of peace might balance its weight on that different fulcrum. Peace, a presence, an energy field more intense than war might pulse then, stanza by stanza into the world, each an act of living one of its words, each word a vibration of light, facets of the forming crystal. Pretty powerful. Yeah, isn't that <laughs> uh, nice? Yeah, it is. You know, one of the things, I actually have, happened to have her piece uh, in front of me now. I was, I was looking at, at some things and, and found her. I hadn't, hadn't been aware of her before. But looking at the words really helps. <laughs> yes. You know, just listening is one of those things. It's hard. But, 
But looking at the words is, is another kind of revelation where you get to see kind of where these things fit together. Yeah. And when we do this with our Lectio Divina time, I put it up on the screen so that everyone can see and read the words. And we usually have the words read, um, read uh, by different voices because you often hear things as different people read different cadences and uh, what they influctuate. Yes, yeah. so, Judge, our audience cannot see this, unfortunately, they're radio listeners. So can you uh, explain what does that point mean to you? Just a, a summary. Well, sure. The poem for me talks about the power of, well, it's comparing peace and, and writing a poem. But I like that it talks about poets must give us imagination of peace to oust the intense, familiar imagination of disaster. Uh, a lot of what we talk about in this work is the need for what we call the moral imagination, the need to imagine a different world. Because we often get stuck in these images and metaphors and arguments that don't give us hope. And what we need, I think the human psyche needs, and the soul needs the moral imagination. We need to be able to imagine a different world in order to live into it. And in the peace and justice making work, often it's our artists, our musicians that can imagine a world that we don't live in that then can help shape our actions for change. And this is also true of uh, Jungian psychoanalysis is that the future self individually and I think collectively emerges in the the unconscious and it the unconscious presents to the conscious self um, the future through using symbols like dreams and artists are able to to captivate those unconscious images either for the self or for the collective and they paint them or they draw them or they put them in music or they write them in poems and that gives us a sense of what future wants to emerge but that often comes to us through symbolic language and for example currently we're about to launch a, a new program called the beloved community which is a um, an image that dr uh, martin luther king used to to evoke the kind of society that we might want to live in so it's not talking about injustice it's talking about what does justice look like you know, the beloved community, that's a, it's an image, it's symbolic. And if we can, I think it's a powerful image that, that focuses on what we want rather than what we don't want. And sometimes in the social change world, we talk about it, appreciative inquiry, that it's often better, not necessarily better, but it's important that we talk about what is working, what can we build on, uh, where do we see peace? Where do we see equality emerging? Um, and not that we don't need to name all the other places where it's not happening. And there are definitely times to focus on injustice and telling the truth about the reality of the way things are. But we need to balance that with these images of hope, of what are we trying to work for? And I think poetry uh, does that or can do that. It can evoke within us images of hope. So it's kind of, uh, from a way back, a power of positive thinking. <laughs> yeah, that's, a, that's one way you can, you know, and I, I, I think that can go too far as well where we're, you know, just not 
dismissing the reality of people's pain or suffering, but I, there is something about focusing on the positive that gives us energy that's um, generative, maybe in a way sometimes that uh, other energies aren't. Imagining a world that could be, rather than the world that many of us see every day, especially the world that comes to us from the mainland news, because the mainland news brings us violence and war and comes into our living rooms every night. So I think a place to start is imagining a world that could be a world that's peaceful. That's how we get the idea in our minds that, that things could be different. So I totally agree with your statement there in terms of how poetry helps us uh, imagining a different world. And it not only helps us imagine a different world, it, it, it also brings us into the starkness of people's experience. So it's also a truth-telling method, I think, or often I hear it. And I've got another poem, um, if it's okay to read that one. This uh, is an example of uh, a lot of the poems we do are written, um, especially during the summer, have been written by Black members of our community or uh, Black people in general about their experience. And so here's another poem that's a kind of a truth-telling poem that comes. It's entitled... When I Think of Tamar Rice While Driving by Reginald Dwayne Betts. In the back seat of my car are my sons, still not yet Tamar's age, already having heard me warn them against playing with toy pistols, though my rhetoric is always about what I don't like, not what I fear, because sometimes I think of Tamar Rice and I shed tears the weeping all another insignificance, all another way to avoid saying what should be said. The Second Amendment is a ruthless one. The pomp and constitutional circumstance that says my arms should be heavy with the weight of a pistol when forced to confront death like this. A child, a hidden toy gun, an officer that fires before his heart beats twice. My two young sons play in the back seat while the video of Tamar dying plays in my head. And for everything I do not know, the thing I don't say is that this should not be the brick and mortar of poetry, the moment when a black father drives his black sons to school and the thing in the air is the death of a black boy that the father cannot mention. Because to mention the death is to invite discussion of taboo. If you touch my son's crimsons that touches the concrete must belong. At some point to you, the police officer who justifies the echo of the fired pistol. Taboo, the thing that says justice is a killer's body mangled and disrupted by bullets because his mind would not accept the narrative of your child's dignity, of his right to life, of his humanity. And the crystalline brilliance you saw when your boys first breathed. The narrative must invite more than children bleeding on a crisp fall day. And this is why I hate it all, the people around me the black people who march, the white people who cheer, the other brown people, 
Latinos and Asians and all the colors of humanity that we erase in this American dance around death as though we are not permitted to articulate the reasons we might yearn to see a man die. There is so much that has to disappear for my mind to be abandoned sanity. Tamar, for instance, everything about him, even as his face really and truly reminds me of my own. In the last photo I took before heading off to a cell, disappears and all I have stomach for is blood. And there is a part of me that wishes that it would go away, the memories, and that I could abandon all talk of making it right and justice. But my mind is no sieve and sanity is no elixir. And I am bound to be haunted by the strength that lets Tamar's father, mother, kinfolk resist the temptation to turn everything they see into a grave and make home the series of cells that is so many of my brothers already call their tomb. That is so personal. Yeah. <laughs> Comes right out of the soul. You know, it's, it's not to, to say that prose is not, it really speaks to you. I mean, it takes you right into where he, you know, is struggling. Yeah. And, you know, the piece, uh, the first time I read it, I got really choked up um, when he talked about the, just at the very beginning, in the back seat of my car are my sons. And I have, I have two boys as well. And so all of a sudden I connected with him and, and you know, often looking in the rearview mirror and seeing my sons. And yet uh, I've had a completely different experience. You know, I've, that's not the images of Tamar Rice didn't remind me of my own boys. You know, they didn't remind me of my own face. And so I'm confronted in just those few words with his story that is so different than my story. And yet we share this love of our sons. So there's this beautiful difference and sameness that happens in hearing those that for me is really important and, and transformative. So Judd, tell us again the author of that poem. Yeah, that was written by Reginald Dwayne Betts. And okay. he had spent time in jail and uh, started writing poetry while in jail. Um, and so, yeah, that was his kind of place of transformation. So yeah. He's local, right? No, he's not local. I don't know where he is now, but I believe he's actually, he's going back for his PhD, I believe, at Yale. He's won a lot of awards, uh, Reginald Dwayne Betts. Yeah. And I can tell you, as a white male with a white male experience, I have no claim to understand the African-American experience in this country. So poetry, music, that comes from African-Americans gets me to listen. It gives me an opportunity to listen and at least have intellectual understanding of the African-American experience in this country. So those kinds of points are, are vital, in my yeah. opinion. Going back to that positive that you, you mentioned earlier about imagining the world or the way things should be in terms of people that we do know, like John Lennon, know of, I guess, not personally know, his poem, Imagine, it's, it's mm. somewhere in that. Um, yeah. Let me read just those, those uh, first few lines. 
imagine there's no countries. It isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or to die for. No religion. No religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Yeah. Yeah, very powerful. So uh, there's a way to, to say, okay, you know, we're not talking about, but actually he is talking about uh, negatives and positives in the same in the same yeah, time. he's able to critique the present by giving, pointing out a future that we want. That's kind of the beauty of that imagination. It does critique the reality of our, you know, our borders and our religions that are worldviews that are opposed to one another. Yeah. Yeah, so you got something else? You know, I've got, uh, yeah, here's a shorter one. And this is, I think, the challenge of our artists being using what we would call prophetic imagination. This is called For the Consideration of Poets, Bahaki R. Madhabudi. Where is the poetry of resistance, the poetry of honorable defiance, unafraid of lies from career politicians and businessmen, not respectful of journalists who write official speak, void of educated thought, without double search or subsurface questions that war talk demands. Where's the poetry of doubt and suspicion? Not in the service of the state, bishops and priests, not in service of beautiful people and late night promises, not in the service of influential incompetence and academic clown talk. And I love that last line, the academic clown talk. You know, so I'm working on my PhD. I know a lot about academic clown talk, you know, so it's just completely devoid of, you know, any subjectivity or any, you know, depth. And um, so I love that poem. Like, where are the poems? You know, let's write about that stuff. So take that a little bit further. What what are you thinking about clown talk? Give you a little more about Well, what he's saying is... um, where the poetry of doubt and suspicion. And then the last line is not in the service of, of influence, incompetence and academic clown talk. And I I think, you know, what he's critiquing there asking is like, where are we talking outside of uh, a gym, as you said, of mainline media or, you know, something that's got an agenda behind it to keep, power and control, uh, but where's the subversive poetry? You know, where are we writing about something that doesn't have an agenda that's controlled by, by capitalism or by the market or by, you know, academics trying to control truth or knowledge? So I think that's what kind of inspires me about it. It's the, the you know, as, as you all are reading, you know, like the the 70s movement or the a lot of the peace and justice movement that happened in the 60s and 70s that was led by musicians you know it became the that became the social capital of the transformative movement right um that was done by by poets and musicians bob dylan yeah 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 i was i was yeah i was thinking the same thing peter paul and mary moody blues john lennon beatles those well uh, Jazz, uh, jazz music um, that emerged in New Orleans definitely has the the blues is able to share the experience of black and marginalized communities 
and it resonates with their experience and energizes them for, for change. Yeah, you know, music uh, tends to repeat a lot of the lines. So you, you have a chance to, to hear those, uh, those concepts and thoughts over and, and over so you can, you can absorb that a little maybe easier than you are reading a, a full line of, you know, uh, uh, poetry that's not repeated. There are a lot of concepts that are constant, constantly coming at you. But the music then tends to relay a message that is important, maybe just yeah. more, I guess. Well, it, yeah, it, it comes to us in a different way, or we talk about it different than we talk about somebody's opinion. So it, it creates a dialogical space quicker because we listen and connect to it. Yeah, I think the, the shorter poems tend to uh, to give us a chance to to absorb it a little little more than than the longer ones. The longer ones are, are take a lot more thought, and like we're talking about now, like you're going through a, a lot of those lines that we may have missed on the on the first reading. Right, and that's why we usually always read these poems at least twice. Um, because there's always something that you know that shows up in them the second and third time that we read them. Well, there's a, another giant that uh, we might mention, Maya Angelou. She's written so much. She's written a lot of prose. She's written poetry. I've got one here that it's a short one that I'll read if that's uh, if that's okay. Please. Guys. Yeah, beautiful. This one's called "The Rock Cries Out to Us Today." Each of you, a bordered country. Delicate and strangely made proud, yet thrusting perpetually under siege. Your armed struggles for profit have left collars of waste upon my shore, currents of debris upon my breast. Yet today I call you to my riverside. If you will study war no more, come clad in peace and I will sing the songs the creator gave to me when I and the tree and stone were one. Mm, yeah. She's kind of invoking natural history or natural imagery to human life and kind of goes through a long span of time that, that uh, denounces war and calls for peace and in the voice of a rock. <laughs> yeah. There's another, I was looking through my list, and then there's the, her famous caged bird. Yeah. A, free bird uh, a free bird leaps on the back of the wind and floats downstream till the current ends and dips his wing in the orange sun rays and dares to claim the sky. But a bird that stalks down his narrow cage can seldom see through his bars of rage. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The caged bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown but longed for still, and his tune is heard on the distant hill, for the caged bird sings of freedom. The free bird thinks of another breeze, and the trade wind soft through the sighing trees, and the fat worms waiting on a down bright lawn and he names the sky his own. But a cage bird stands on the grave of dreams. His shadow shouts on a nightmare scream. His wings are clipped and his feet are tied, so he opens his throat to sing. The
The cage bird sings with a fearful trill of things unknown, but longed for still. And his tune is heard on the distant hill, for the cage bird sings of freedom. There's a lot of imagery there. How does that, you think, relate to human experience? Well, the yeah, using the metaphor of the bird that's bound, tied, and caged. Yeah, I just think that seems like to be such a powerful and important metaphor for the Black experience. Again, it's hard for me to get into that one in my own sense, because I've definitely been a, a the metaphor of the free bird has been my experience. You know, I've had every opportunity, the, the green worms, the freedom to fly. Um, so in reading it, again, I'm, I am brought into my own particularity in not a judgmental way, um, or the, the poem doesn't intentionally speak judgment on me, but my reading of it and hearing it and realizing what bird am I in that story brings with it its own responsibility while also helping me realize that yeah, a lot of people feel caged, tied, wings clipped, and that's what we've done. So again, that's why the, the beauty of the poem lifts up someone else's experience, but in reading it, it also brings me into my own responsibility. Or how about you all? What, is, what do the poems do for you? Boy, when you, when you try to see that from a Black perspective, which... I'm glad you mentioned that because you know when I when you were reading it, I didn't I didn't think in those terms. But if you look at that phrase where she's saying the bird stalks is a narrow cage, can seldom through its bars of rage. You know, I can begin to see the black experience there. You know, being caught in the cage of discounting blackness and the rage that would come from that in a person who constantly is faced with that sort of thing, wings clipped feet tied. You can look back and see that in the, <laughs> the ship being transported over here by, you know, as a slave. A lot of stuff in there. <laughs> yeah, right. It's, yeah, it gets rich. So here's another one, and this is, um, a, it's called uh, Ice Agents Storm My Porch by Maria Melendez Kelson. The indiscriminate citizenry of Earth are out to arrest my sense of being a misfit. Open up, they bellow, hands quiet before my door. That's only wind and juniper needless anyway. You can't do it, I speak from inside. You can't make me feel at home here in this time of siege for me and mine, Miraza. Legalized suspicion of my legitimacy is now a permanent resident in my gut. Fruit of the prickly pear, they swear, striding up to my table to juice me a glass of pink nectar. They brought welcome baskets stuffed with proof I'm earthly. From under a, a gingheim cover, I tuck a dark feather, iridescent green, cohering to a magpie thought, to memories chatter to mine, mine. And here they have my mind translated into a slate-surfaced pond, which vibrates in the shape of a cottonwoods autumn molt, which trees me to dirt, which soils me heat and freeze. But you'll always be one definite document short, I complain. Doubts can forever outstrip your, e your geologic, for which they produce a lack of my natal dust, bronze to the fluttering fiber 
of lace bark pine. Where'd they get that stuff? The baskets are bottomless and it's useless for me to insist on being distinct. Undergoing reportation, I'm awakened to a center where walls between all beings are dreamt to dissolve. And so there we have a different experience, you know, someone who is, yeah, come, uh, you know, I, and what the poem means is always open for interpretation. But what I hear there is in this midst of these discriminating forces about what does it mean to be a citizen? And like you were mentioning a minute ago, James, the, the what would a world look like without those boundaries? She comes into this kind of deeper connection to earth and, to nature, which it seems like it grounds her in her own humanity when there are all these dehumanizing forces around her that are trying to dehumanize her. And that's kind of what I heard in that. There was both this kind of hopeful humanizing in the midst of dehumanizing forces. You know, one of the things that I've found helpful is to close my eyes when somebody else is reading <laughs> mm, <laughs> i can yeah. get distracted by all the, all the other things that are in, in your life but uh you know to eliminate all that stuff and just because it helps to concentrate on and and hear a bit more of what the what the poet or poem is saying when the lectio divina process that we do we always start with five minutes of silence and that's to be able to clear out all those other voices and let the words really kind of one of the ways we imagine Lectio Divina is allowing the poem to be like a sieve that we drop down into our being. And then when we pull it up, it come, it evokes certain things in us. So it, it pulls out these things, these other images or uh, feelings. And then we work with what's in the sieve. Everybody gets to share, wow, what came up for me was this. And then it becomes a new kind of form of, of poetry, us sharing what we experienced through hearing the poem. So there's this kind of deepening of this process about what wants to speak or what wants to become present in this Lectio Divina process. And we've been doing scattershot. We usually only spend, sometimes we spend a whole hour just with one poem. Every once in a while, we'll read two. I hear what you're saying, James, about, yeah, all these words can be distracting, especially as we're reading them this quickly. You know, you've read several points by black poets, and uh, we did uh, Solutions to Violence, did a uh, program uh, on black poets and black literary artists, and we started researching that black history, and Mm -hmm. we just found there were so many incredible poets, literary geniuses, really, Sonia Sanchez, Paul Dunbar, Alice Walker, Goldwyn mm-hmm. Brooks, Nikki Finney, James Baldwin, Langston Hughes. It just went on and on and on. We couldn't. We did two programs on just black poets and black uh, uh, literary artists who had made great contributions. So yeah, it does seem like a, that there are a number of uh, black poets that we don't hear about in our high school and middle school history books, uh, yeah. but have done great works. It's really uh, impressive that you that you're bringing that poetry to our show today. Yeah. Well, and I think you know that's the statement that a lot of people are making in in Louisville, Kentucky. The black population makes up 23 percent of our population. So 
if our curriculum is going to reflect our community, then 23% of the stories, 23% of the authors, 23% of the, the people we read need to be black people. And I think that's a curricular kind of thing, Jim, that you're talking about is you know, we were all, I was raised here in Louisville and went to Wagner High School, you know, and I, we didn't have, I mean, maybe for Black History Month, you would get a kind of a token. I don't even know when Black History Month was put into place, but it just shows that the curricula around culture, what we teach about what is knowledge or what's information or what's important has so been controlled by uh, white power and privilege, especially around the ability to cr- control educational curriculum. I know JCPS is working on that some and asking questions about what is an equitable, multicultural, multicultural, diverse uh, curriculum. Yeah, I, I remember uh, teaching sixth grade social studies. Uh, I endured some criticism because I, I got into the, the black history much deeper than what the curriculum allowed. So, but, and and that bothers me. Uh, Addison Scott is trying to change that. She has a bill before Congress that uh, should hopefully change that curriculum so that more African-American history is put into the curriculum. There's there's some thought on the limits of Black History Month, (laughs) which is another one of those pages in a way that that says, well, it doesn't go beyond February. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, it needs to be more inclusive of the broader experience and more than what you can get into one month. Right. Well, you know, we do talk about solutions as much as we can on, on solutions to violence. Are there poems that you can point to that, that would talk about, here's the result of what can be out of conflict? Yeah, there is, uh, let me pull up another resource here. I was just going to say, while you're uh, looking for that, there's one by Wendell Berry. He's it's a, it's a homegrown poet uh, sure. here in Kentucky. He re- he's written one called A Piece of Wild Things. Oh, sure, yeah. <laughs> Where he, he contrasts human and animal approaches to, to worrying about the future and, and how being with those, you know, you don't worry about finding peace for those, you know, that who do, who do worry. But uh, the beginning of that poem says, when despair grows in me and I wake in the night in the night as the least sound and fear in what life and my children's lives may be I go and lie down where the wood drake rests in his beauty on the water and the great heron feeds I come into the peace of wild things who do not tax their lives with forethought of grief yeah that's I just love that poem the yeah, and it's 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 really speaking to to getting out in nature to calm yourself and and think of, of things in a different way and, and refreshing, so that you know you can think positively because you see you see things growing you see things working without worrying about stuff. Yeah. Yeah, Jamie, I think that's an excellent point. I think we are. Not only is the wild bird caged, I think we, we humans in, in this modern society are, are caged sometimes. We, we, we spend most of our lives in a, in a house, in a building, in a car. We don't have the opportunity to get out in, into nature and see the peace that that brings to us. So one of the berries yeah. pointing that out here. Nature deficit disorder. That's <laughs> what they call it with kids. <laughs> Here's another, this is a more hopeful, this comes from the Hopi elders, we are the ones we've been waiting for. 
you have been telling people that this is the 11th hour. Now you must go back and tell people that this is the hour. And there are things to be considered. Where are you living? What are you doing? What are your relationships? Are you in right relation? Where is your water? Know your garden. It is time to speak your truth. Create your community. Be good to each other. And do not look outside yourself for your leader. Then he clasped his hands together, smiled, and said, This could be a good time. There is a river flowing now very fast. It is so great and swift that there are those who will be afraid. They will try to hold on to the shore. They will feel they are being torn apart and will suffer greatly. No, the river has its destination. The elders say you must let go of the shore, push off into the middle of the river, keep your eyes open and our heads above the water. And I say, see who is in the boat with you and celebrate. At this time in history, we are to take nothing personal, least of all ourselves. For the moment that we do, our spiritual growth and the journey come to a halt. The time of the lone wolf is over. Gather yourselves. Banish the word struggle from your attitude and your vocabulary. And all that we do now must be done in a sacred manner and in celebration. We are the ones we've been waiting for. So Judd, who wrote that poem, who's the author of that? Yeah, it was written by the, what they call the Hopi Elders, or Hopi, H-O-P-I Elders. Yeah, from Native so, American tribe, yeah. right? Yeah, yeah, thanks for doing that. Yeah, we have talked about That's a poem that's written by several people at the yeah, same time. it must have been a collective one, or at least that's the designation I have. So that's unusual. Yeah. Uh, but I think that's a, you know, I love the imagery in that one, you know, the pushing off from the shore and keeping our heads up and looking around and seeing who's in the water with us. And, you know, that this is the time. This is the time for us to come together and, you know, to, to trust, trust the evolution of humanity, even though it's very scary right now, but trust that there's something more at work. Yeah, I'm looking at a poem by Chief Joseph Nitz Pierce. Indian chief, written back in the 1800s. I can just read this really quick. Hear me, my chiefs. I am tired. My heart is sick and sad. From where the sun stands, I will fight no more forever. So that's Chief Joseph, who had quite a bit of power in terms of Native Americans in those days, saying, we're not going to fight anymore. Our land has been taken over by Europeans, but we want peace now. And the other thing that Chief Joseph was was asking for in those days was just fairness. He was asking for all the the Native Americans to be treated by the white chiefs the same way that white people were treated. And that request rings true today. I think African Americans are asking for the same thing. Yeah, may it be so. We're getting close to the the end of our program. Are are there uh, favorite poems or poets that you would like to mention? Well, I'm, you know, I've just been doing a summer series. I've been into kind of spiritual poetry. Rilke, Reinhold Maria Rilke is a, yeah, a great poet. I find so much meaning in, um, and then Rumi, anything you read from Rumi, I always just kind of bliss out on. He, 
he uh, has a great spiritual. So, I, you know, I think those are um, Mary Oliver, of course. Those are some of the poets that have been really meaningful in my own my spiritual canon. But I'm finding this kind of looking at, um, you know, diverse diverse authors to be really fulfilling right now. It's been a, a real revelation to me just to look at topics of uh, poetry. Because, uh, of course, I have a, a lot of that online. It's very easy to find those, those yeah. areas of poetry that you might be interested in, you know, taking a look at. So it's, it's, it's been a real pleasure. Um, Jim, do you have anything else you want to mention, or do we have more time? Yeah, we've got about uh, five minutes before we start to start into closing here. So, uh, Judd, you got another poem, uh, maybe one of your spiritual poems, your favorite ones? You wanna, you wanna get out there? Um, yeah, there's, um, yeah, there, here's a poem by uh, Rainer Maria Rilke, and it, it talks a lot. Um, for me, it's a, this is a lot about those of us that are doing change work. Well, I'll just read it. Live the questions. I would like to beg you, dear sir, as well as I can, to have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and do try to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language. Don't search for the answers which you could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. And that is the point, to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday far off in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answers. Well, this is something we haven't done before, but why don't you read that again? <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> so we can, get, we can get a little more out of that one point. Want to yeah. do it again? Sure. Live the Questions by Reiner Maria Rilke. I would like to beg you, dear sir, as well as I can, to have patience with everything unresolved in your heart and to try to love the questions themselves as if they were locked rooms or books written in a very foreign language. Don't search for the answers which could not be given to you now because you would not be able to live them. And that is the point, to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps then, someday far in the future, you will gradually, without even noticing it, live your way into the answers. Hmm. Wow, <laughs> live your way into the answers. Yeah. And I love that. I mean, loving the questions in the social change work, we often talk about what are the powerful, evocative questions that we can be asking our communities? Because questions often have evoked consciousness more so than answers do. And I think defining the really important questions is a lot of what we can do in, in social change is, is ask those questions, define those questions. And then, as he says, live them, you know, with our lives. We won't be able to answer them. Because if you could answer them, they wouldn't be really powerful questions. So we have to take the long, the long story in answering those with our lives. Yeah, that's something to consider. How do you live a question? <laughs> yeah. Or what are the questions you're living? That's uh -huh. the really important. 
Yeah, I remember when uh, when Jamie and I were teaching uh, solutions to violence to high school kids, uh, one of the things we taught was question the answers. Your teacher gives you an answer, question that answer. You don't always accept the, what's the word, the, the question, that, the answer that is the norm. Change comes from questions. Yeah. Well, we are out of time, so if you got something quick, Jamie. Well, I was just going to say the question becomes not on your own, but only your own, but it becomes other people's question, too, because they may not have thought to go in that direction. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Judd, uh, are there any programs that you want to mention that are regularly broadcast or uh, put online or repeated? Do you have anything to offer in those things that you'd like to promote for our IPP? Yeah, Interfaith Paths to Peace, uh, every morning at 9 o'clock, we offer a different devotional from a different religious uh, or spiritual tradition, and we do that uh, on Zoom and also on Facebook Live. And then at 3 o'clock every day, we offer different programs around co-learning and bringing our community together to have important conversations. So you can find all of the schedule for that on IPP online at paths2peace.org. And that's the number piece. And uh, if you go on there, you can see uh, a lot of our downloaded videos that we have in archives and also the schedule of each week coming up. So listeners, we are out of time. So our guest today has been Judd Hendricks, Executive Director of Louisville's Interfaith Path to Peace, a Bellarmine University adjunct professor and lover of poetry. Our program will be repeated Tuesday, August 17th at 8 a.m. and again Wednesday, August 18th at 6 a.m. You can listen live stream by visiting our website at forwardradio.org and clicking on Listen Live Now. We will place the Solutions to Violence program that features Judd Hendricks in our archives Wednesday, August 18th. To listen via our archives, just visit our website at forwardradio.org and scroll down to the program to program archives and then scroll down to the Solutions to Violence program that features Judd Hendricks. For more information and a schedule of programming that will surprise and delight you, visit us at forwardradio.org and click on Broadcast Schedule. You may respond to us with your thoughts and suggestions by visiting us at solutionsofviolence18 at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. So until next time, we are Jamie McMillan and Jim Johnson, your hosts for Solutions to Violence. Our technical engineer will be provided by Carolyn Brooks Johnson. So we leave you now with one last thought. Change to me is not about what any one individual does. It's about what we all do when we work together and understand that none of us is expendable and that we can make the change we need. It's a call from Louisville's own Carla Wallace. Thanks for listening.